Welcome to the Offshore Accountant Podcast. I'm Nick Sinclair and this is the go-to podcast if you're an accountant and looking to set up and build a high-performing offshore team for your accounting firm. Here you can learn how to complement your local efforts, grow capacity and deliver more to clients than ever before. Hear from experts who have done it already. Let's go. Today, I had a great conversation with Andrew Matner, partner of Altitude Advisory based out of Adelaide in Australia. His firm's niche is to help people build better businesses through strategy and accountability to help them build better lives. To do this, he needed to create capacity for their local advisors to facilitate growth. Listen in to our conversation. Hi, I'm Andrew Matner from Altitude Advisory, and you're listening to the Offshore Accountant Podcast. Andrew, give us an overview of your team structure locally, offshore, number of team members, roles, how long they've been with you, um, and just a bit more of a summary of your business. Yeah, sure, Nick. Look, our business, I guess, is a little bit complicated in that we run, well, there's effectively seven different business segments uh, under our banner. Altitude Advisory, I guess, is our biggest segment. It's our business advisory and it's our, I guess, our oldest segment as well. It's the the foundation uh, part of our business. And then, which basically deals with business advisory clients, you know, bigger size that are looking for business growth and, and higher levels of engagement with their advisors. We run a, a smaller tax division called Master Tax. We've got a financial planning arm. We've got a family office, a cloud integration business, a self-managed super fund admin platform, and a business sales division as well. And I guess across all those business segments, we've got 49 team members in all. We've got three major equity partners and a smaller equity partner. Onshore, in, in terms of the Altitude team, which is where our, our offshore team are engaged, I guess there's two, two partners, six local-based client managers, five offshore accountants, uh, and we're currently looking at expanding that uh, a little bit. Uh, we've got a couple of local admin team. Our internal bookkeeping's done offshore, and my EA uh, is offshore as well. So. Like I said, you know, there's 49 team members and effectively seven of those are, uh, are in the Philippines. Excellent. So quite a diverse business, which is good. And you've, you've really been an early adopter of this. You were one of our first clients. I think, in fact, you're the only client that attended, one of our only clients that attended our first ever Christmas and anniversary party. That's how long you've been doing it. So um, it's a bit scary look, now, mate. <laughs> it is, it is. I mean, you're an early adopter, which is great. You're an innovator. Your firm's certainly an industry leader. So do you have a niche market that you look after across the different business units or is it just more of a generalist business? From an attitude perspective, our niche is is basically business growth. So we don't have an industry niche as such because the the fundamentals of of helping a growing business are, are the same whether you're in agriculture, whether you're in retail, whether you're in manufacturing. The principles are around that, I guess, are transferable across industry. So our niche is, is helping people grow their business through, through the development of strategy, accountability, reporting platforms, growth initiatives, including, you know, I guess, marketing and sales, uh, sales improvement structures, things, things like that. So we, we basically take the frameworks that we've adopted internally to grow our own business and overlay them and, and coach our clients to do the same. So that, that's probably our, our niche. Excellent. 
Now, we spoke obviously about you being a real early adopter, um, particularly with us. What were your motivations behind setting up an offshore team versus obviously the other priorities that you have across obviously all of the different business units that you have? Yeah, for sure. I guess we looked at it purely from an altitude perspective initially, and we looked at the business model that we had here and and the roles that we had our uh, local team uh, filling. And I guess to grow the business advisory and the client engagement and and implement those growth plans for clients that we wanted to to do is we needed the team here in Australia doing a lot more client-facing work and a lot less number-crunching work. And we said, okay, well, if we need, if our capacity requires this many hours to do this work, how can we do that in an effective way? And we looked at it and we said, okay, if we're going to, I guess, jump in here, we need to create, you know, six to 8,000 hours of capacity in our team. And how can we do that in an effective manner? And we looked at various options, including recruiting, you know, graduate accountants or senior accountants and, and things like that here in Australia. And we said, okay, that doesn't necessarily give us the right leverage points uh, for what we need in our business. And generally, nobody here in Australia or or the the emerging accountants here in Australia don't want to be doing that type of work. And as a result, we said, okay, let's put in, let's go offshore and see what we can can find. So that, that was the catalyst. That was the catalyst for it. Okay, fantastic. So how did you go about getting set up? Because obviously when you started, it wasn't common for the offshoring model. There was outsourcing models where you could send the work. But how did you go setting up, researching, obviously finding um, us as the partner, the recruitment, um, the onboarding? What process did you go through and how long did it take? Yeah, um, look, we did some offshoring for a period of time there through through a supplier and that experience was pretty ordinary, to be honest. And so we're a little bit guarded at first. And and I guess we started to look into this a lot more on the back of some conversations with our old business coaching firm, which was through the Rob Nixon network. And so we looked at that and I came back and basically presented to my operations team and board here uh, in Adelaide and said, look, I think this is something that we need need to investigate further. So what I did was I went on a study tour of the Philippines. Uh, we did a lot of research, had a lot of conversations. And then I went and did a three or four day study tour through the Philippines where I went and met with different providers in Manila and Clark as well. And, and you you guys, Nick, were was one of the businesses that we, we met with on that, that tour. I came back then and I guess looked at the looked at a, a variety of factors in terms of the talent pool, you know, travel, location, things like that. I wasn't, uh, you know, personally, I'm not a massive fan of Manila. Um, that uh, environment didn't suit me and I, I didn't want my team there. It was just too busy and crowded and I just get, I just, I guess, I had some concerns for, for our, our team in, in terms of, uh, of being there uh, initially. So we sort of ruled out Manila and because it was, I guess there was a provider in Manila or, and yourselves who, who stood out from the rest of the providers we looked at. And then the, I guess the coin fell on the side of Clark, just as we felt that the environment there was a lot more conducive or welcoming to our local team members when they were going to go and visit and, and stay there and, and so on. So I went and did that tour, we made that decision and then we, I guess, had a, a number of conversations with, with you and your management team. Nick, we, we caught up at a conference in Bali and 
you had some of your team there where it was important for the rest of my peers who hadn't, I guess, experienced or, or met any team members from the Philippines to do that. So we, we had that and we caught up for, for a few hours at that conference. And then we decided to press the button and, and say go. I guess three to four months uh, of initial due diligence. And we started off recruiting, I guess, a senior administrator first. And then oh, I guess, you know, a few months after that, we started with our first batch of, first batch of accountants. Excellent. So obviously you've had a, a long journey now doing this or compared to a lot of firms anyway. For someone looking to set up an offshore team, what advice would you give to them to move as quickly as possible? What would be the three most critical things that you would spend your time doing? Oh, look, to be honest, mate, if I, I look back on the things that we did well and the things that we did poorly, uh, I, I'm still a big believer in the model, but there is no way that we executed it as well as we should have, and, and we, I guess we're still, you know, it's still a, a constant work in progress for us to get the efficiencies and so forth that we'd like out of it. And the big reason for that is, as much as people told me this at the start, and as much as I thought we were okay, was around our processes, 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 and more processes. And as it turned out, our processes were far from up to scratch for what was needed to execute the integration of a, a, an offshore team effectively. The second thing that uh, I guess was a, a challenge for us was, I guess, integration and change management. Accountants in general aren't always necessarily great people managers. And at times we've had struggles with the integration or the, the transfer of knowledge, information, training, whatever you want to call it, between our offshore team and our local team. And I think if you, if you have a look at the reasons why, is that some people struggle to actually train and develop somebody who's sitting in the desk alongside of them, let alone having, let alone the challenge of training and developing somebody who you have to do that remotely over Skype or Zoom or the telephone, who you can't sit there and have a, a, you know, a, an effective conversation with. So that was challenging. We would have spent a lot more time training and putting skills or developing skills within our local team to be able to manage that. And probably the third thing for us is, you know, in terms of the provider, um, and, and we've had a, a good relationship with you guys, is around finding the, the right provider. And what I mean by that is making sure that there's cultural alignment, that there's the right level of support, that there's trust in, in the platforms and training and things like that. And I know, you know, there's been challenges with technology and, and things like that over the period between, you know, your office and, and our office here, but having people that, I guess you can rely on to work through those solutions at, or and come up with a solution effectively is pretty important. So they're, they're probably the three key things that I would, would stress for anybody looking at doing this. So if I had to ask you for one word, which I am, to describe the value <laughs> of your offshore team, what would it be? Look, it's just for us, it's, a, it's about leverage. It's about getting the right number of heads doing the right things at, at the right, you know, the right cost structure. And, you know, that... Like I said, we identified that we needed to create capacity within our existing team, and uh, I still think that's the, the what we've got in place and, and constantly working on is the right way to do it. So it's it's all about leverage for us, let leverage and and that leverage creates value to clients. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And we'll talk a little bit more about that a bit later on. But perceptions of offshoring. So you've been doing it for now close to four mm -hmm. years. What mm -hmm. are the main things that you've heard about offshoring, and what surprised you the most? 
Yeah, um, I've had some clients that have flat out refused to or, or have left us on the back of us having an offshore team. So that, that's been some interesting conversations. And regardless of whether you school them up on, on how this works and explain to them that, that the guys that we've got offshore are as much part of our team as what our local team are, there's still this strange perception with some people and I, I don't get it, but I understand that it's it's real. And the main bit around that has been, oh, I guess, risk of local jobs. And, you know, the reality is that we've actually employed more people on the back of having an offshore team and helped our clients grow so that they've employed more people on the back of that. So it's actually, for me, that's it, actually a, a fallacy. It's a, it's a counter argument. I've had some challenges with some former team members who just philosophically disagree with it. And, you know, they, they've decided that that's not the right environment for them. Um, and so they've they, they've just gone off and, and done other things. And, and, and again, I don't, don't know why, whether it's a cultural thing or a, a racial thing or whatever it is, I, I don't know. But they're probably the two major objections that we've had which is unfortunate. You know, we're, we're very much a, an inclusive culture in, in our office and, and I suppose that, you know, if people don't like that environment, they disqualify themselves to a point. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with what you're saying around, particularly around the fallacies of it. So, Andrew, if we're looking at the year ahead for your business units, what <laughs> is the plan with your offshore team? How do you plan to keep growing your team, their capability and, more importantly, their performance? Yeah, so I guess one of the things that, Nick, we've, we've consistently struggled with is we've struggled to getting the right level of efficiency uh, at the right times and trying to identify, I guess, the reasons for that and, and whether it's a process issue, whether it's a skills issue, whatever it might be. And so what we've done, and I sat down with the whole team, oh, going back three or four months ago now, uh, and said, okay, we need to rebuild the process and the way this interaction works uh, in, in terms of doing jobs. And what we've done is we're basically going to rebuild or we're in the process of rebuilding our whole job flow process and how the interactions work between our Australian-based team and, and our offshore team. And to help facilitate that, given that us as accountants, we're not great at necessarily building process, we've actually just employed a production manager or an operations manager who basically his role in this business now, and he's starting with the Attitude team, is to basically pull apart the processes and implement, I guess, change within the group about how how things move through the organisation. And I think that'll help create some efficiencies. I'm certain it'll help improve the, the relationships and the development between the, the local team members and, and the offshore team. The second thing that we're going to do, and, and we haven't done this yet, uh, we've done it sort of a little bit ad hoc where we've had a couple of team members at a time come and visit, is we're planning to bring the whole team out to Australia for a couple of weeks, probably in October. Um, and we're in the early stages of just working that out now. And, and I think in relation to building rapport and relationships, having having the guys sit over here and then understand what it actually means to be part of this team is really important. We move extremely faster out here. It's a high intensity environment and I'd like to see that environment over there as well. And, and that's obviously hard to manage when you're so far away and you don't have eyes on it all the time. So them coming and sitting here and actually learning what the expectations are for their work and, and to sit alongside the people that they talk to and interact with every day for a couple of weeks, I think will be will be a massive improvement. 
And, and I, I think that just largely then goes about building, you know, a, another level of trust in the group. So, you know, we, we're going to start, you know, I guess recruiting again. We've got, we've got a couple of people I think we need. So, you know, we're about to start that process and, and work through that as well. So there, there's a few things that we're up to. That's excellent. And the bringing the team out is a big one. Um, we've had over 10% of our team members come to Australia or US in the first six months of this um, calendar year. So to give some perspective, that's about 90 team members have come to do yep. training um, with their yep. clients. And I was yep. actually in Brisbane yesterday with um, one of our new clients. They've got three of them over here. And I was talking to the Filipino team members saying, what's the biggest, you've only been here a couple of days, but what's the biggest value? And and them being in the environment that they're part of, but they're obviously remote in the Philippines, you can't, yeah. like you said, building your culture with them and, and your style is so much easier when they're sitting in your environment and understanding yeah. it and seeing it. Um, so I can't, yeah. I can't, I suppose, agree more with bringing teams over, training them. It's, it's like having a, another office um, within the same country, but never going and visiting it. So I yeah. highly recommend that for anyone listening. Now, Andrew, I'm going to ask you another question around um, some of the things that you would that are, you would recommend people do. So, recommendations for our listeners on what are the some of the things that you would recommend they do in managing an offshore team? So, more around yep. the management side of it. Yeah, um, I mean, again, the, the processes need to be clear, and, and there needs to be accountability. Needs to be accountability in place, and I guess one of the things that we've found with managing or interacting with our offshore team is that we haven't used technology well enough. We haven't had enough face-to-face -face conversations. We haven't used Skype and Zoom and, and some of these other platforms well enough to, to interact. Instead, reverting to, I'll call it traditional old school comms like email and, and phone. And, and that doesn't give you the visual impact and it doesn't give you the other communication triggers that that's really important in developing relationships and helping train people so that is one thing that is you know we're really hot on at the minute and, and making sure that that's going to going to uh, happen and get up to scratch and I guess the reason for that is you know uh, I can sit here in an office uh, or at a desk here in Norwood in in Adelaide and I can see what everybody's doing and I can see when they've got a problem and I can see when there's an issue and I can you know I know what's going on when there's that separation like we've got with offshore, unless you've got those regular touch points and it's a, a visual cue or impact to see what's going on, yeah, you know, it's a little bit out of sight, out of mind. And I think we've, you know, let things get away from us at, at times in terms of our, our management. And, you know, from that perspective, I, I think it's really important that anybody with a, a, an offshore team has those, those platforms or management platforms in place. The other thing, again, that we haven't done really well is just, uh, I guess, effectively or effective job management or, or job flow management. And what I mean by that is, you know, handover of, of work, key trigger points or check-ins, clarity on budget hours and expectations, proper handovers, proper reviews. Some of those things just didn't work as well as they should have. And, that, and that's, I guess, reverting back to my original point about process, 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 is that our processes weren't good enough to deal with that type of thing. So having really clear milestones and hours budgets and check-in points and all those sort of things are, are clear. The other thing that we've learned is that our team in the Philippines are incredibly nice. And that's not always necessarily a good thing. And what I mean by that they're incredibly nice is at times 
They've told us what we want to hear as opposed to necessarily telling us how it is. And, and that can be a you know, client matter or, or whatever it, it could be. Um, and I know culturally for the Filipinos, they're you know, very big on maintaining their, uh, I guess, their integrity and they don't want to um, come across as, as looking like that they don't know what's going on. But ultimately, that's, a, that's not a character strength in my view. And so being, I think for us being a lot harder in pressing the team members in the Philippines so we actually got to the root of real issues or real problems and then being in a position to solve those problems or train people where there, there were gaps was really important. Too, too often we'd, you know, we'd ask for feedback and they'd say, yeah, no, I've, I've got it under control or, you know, I understand what's going on and you know, yes, Andrew, yes, Kristen, whoever it might be is managing a job, I, I understand. And then 15 hours later, it's clear that that's not the case is obviously, you know, challenging. So that's probably the biggest thing now in our recruiting that we stress is that, you know, culturally, we're not after people here or in the Philippines that are just happy to say, yes, I understand what's going on. We want people that are going to, you know, be prepared to ask questions and challenge and, and improve and do that so that that's they're probably the, the biggest ones mate i would i would say for the for the management of that that team yeah and i think that one around the communication and understanding the filipino culture is probably one of the mm. biggest challenges that our new clients um and even existing clients as you said um have challenges with because it is very much a pleasing culture they don't want to offend or or be negative so they they would typically just agree um, and that's why one of the tips that we always say to people is ask them to show you so if you're training them on something ask them to demonstrate it and show it back to you as opposed yeah. to just saying do you understand because 99 percent of the time in the early stages when you, the trust isn't there i suppose yet they will just say yes Obviously, as the relationship grows with you, obviously that trust um, becomes stronger and stronger and they're, they're more and more honest. But that's probably one of the most positive in, in, in one sense around the Filipino culture is very much around, you know, wanting to please. But then the negative of that is, is that they can often or they can get lost in their way. Yeah. They won't want to offend. Um, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about metrics and how you measure the success of, of your offshore team. So what are the KPIs that you use to measure success for your offshore team and even your yeah. local team? Yeah, look, we're, we're in the process of rebuilding all this at the minute in, in terms of what that looks like. And uh, I guess one of the things that we're actually changing, which is a fundamental change, uh, is we've stopped talking about KPIs and we've started referring to minimum standards. Uh, and this is something that I actually learned from one of my EO buddies uh, in terms of how this made an impact in, in his business. And it's, it's probably more a psychological thing for any, more than anything in that a KPI has traditionally come across as a more of an aspirational thing, whereas a minimum standard is what we expect. And so we've changed our language around that. We're in the process of clearly defining those for the guys going forward and, and rolling that out at the minute. But the simple things for our team that we, we can measure, I guess, revolve around three areas, basically being on time which is monitoring our turnaround time uh, on jobs, being on budget, and that's based on an hour's budget, not a dollar's budget. So if we allocate, you know, 10 hours to do a task, you know, we can measure whether it's taken 10 hours or less. So on time, on budget. And then the third metric that we, we measure is we track our client satisfaction through our net promoter score. 
And if we're doing a good job and we're basically on time, on budget, adding value, then our net promoter score will, will go up. The other thing that is obviously um, it's less measurable, but it's easily observable, uh, is just the, the stress levels of the, the local team here. And I know when things are, are working well and the machine's working, the stress levels and, and the number of hours that have been worked by the local team are quite low or, or a lot lower. When they're strung out and offshores either not working effectively or there's hours blowouts or you know there's a lot of rework or there's things like that uh, are happening, I can see the level of anxiety rise quite <laughs> quite easily. So they're probably the the key metrics, but the easily measurable ones are, like I said, the on time, on budget, and the the client satisfaction. Excellent. And I like some of those, particularly around the NPS scoring. We, um, for TOA, we do employee NPS, so ENPS. Yep. Um, yep. We run that every quarter and also with clients, we run that twice a year. And the biggest thing that I learned about NPS, and I'll be interested in your take on this, Andrew, is that I got told by, again, an EO buddy of mine, that if you're going to run NPS scoring, what you want is the negative feedback, not the positive. Yeah. But what you need to have the ability to do is actually make changes to the feedback that you do get. If you're just running it to run a score to make yourselves feel like you're doing a good job, you're better off not to do it because it'll actually cause more damage than it will actually add value. So I know a lot more accountants are starting to do MPS scoring. So do you want to just tell me a little bit more around why you find that such a valuable tool? For us, it is a client feedback mechanism. And I mean, we regularly ask for feedback as part of our AGM process and general meetings and, and so on anyway. But at the conclusion of every project that we do or every major project, we send out, you know, basically a survey to get feedback. And for us, you're right, Nick, that negative, when you get for us, if it's a score of seven or below, we basically, it's a trigger for us to contact the client and say, well, okay, you've given us that score, what went wrong? What, what got missed? What do we need to work on? And it becomes a relationship building thing as well. And I guess, you know, we work a little bit on the uh, stop, start, keep mentality around here. You know, if we're getting good response rates with good feedback and people are making comments, then we know what's working and that what we need to do more of. And when we're not getting such good feedback, then we know the things that we have to go and, and change or or we need to stop doing or we need to start doing. Excellent. I love that, man. I just love your business mind. We talk to so many accountants that, that just don't have like even the you know the mentality that you have and, and that's why you guys are so successful and are innovators. So, Andrew, tell us a little bit about, and you've mentioned this earlier, but what effect has offshoring had for your clients? What are the benefits that they've received because of you building this offshore team? Look, the biggest thing for clients has just been that, that capacity. I mean, we've got some great client stories where, you know, they've had, had great growth. You know, we've had clients that have been in the fast movers list in, um, in South Australia where they've had you know, offshore teams and, uh, or, or used our offshore team for, for back office functions and, and things like that. So a lot of it has been around helping them grow. And the way we help them grow is, is not by doing you know, tax returns and financial statements. It's about by having you know, the right discussions and helping them you know, create new revenue streams or improve their efficiencies or you know, gross margins or, or whatever it might be. So that's probably the, the biggest area that it's impacted on clients and sometimes they don't necessarily see that 
they don't understand what impact the offshore team has on you know freeing up the team here in Adelaide to have have those conversations. And I know I know particularly for us in in the last three months where we've had you know a huge amount of work to get through and you know due to some some internal health issues with some of our team members unfortunately that the level of I guess client contact or nurturing and stuff like that can noticeably drop off when it's all hands on deck doing work and the impact that has on the clients in a negative way becomes really easy to see. So, you know, I think that's that's where it is. Clients get, get used to the interactions and see the interactions and the benefit and, and that's largely on the on the back of having the team here in, in Adelaide doing the, I guess, the more valuable type work. Excellent. So how has offshoring contributed to giving you more time personally? Obviously, you're one of the yeah. owners of, a, of a, a fairly sizable business, which is quite diverse as well. So has it given you more work-life balance and more structure? Yeah, look, um, it has. Um, you know, I, I don't even know how to really do financial statements and tax returns and stuff like that anymore, So, which is good. So I, I try and stay away from that and, and just do the, I guess, the more higher level strategic coaching and, and business development type work, which is what I enjoy. And having the offshore team has obviously enabled me to step away from that as I've been able to push down a lot more client maintenance to the to the team here. The other thing, you know, my EA, bless her soul, she organises my life and is a huge help to keep me on track. You know, with the number of emails and correspondences and you know, meetings and travel and all that other crap that I need to, that comes across my desk on a day-to-day basis, just having her make sure that I'm in the right place at the right time, that I'm responding to the things that I need to respond to, to make sure I'm at my kids' basketball games on time and in the right place. All those sort of things make a massive, massive difference to my mindset. And I know if I go a couple of days without speaking to her for whatever reason, because I'm in crazy meetings or whatever it might be, I start to get very anxious about what's going on in my world. So, you know, her particularly makes a big difference to me personally. And what was, I want to talk about that a little bit more. What was the driver to having an offshore EA and what was, what's the real benefits that I suppose you've, you've got out of it? You mentioned obviously she organises your life, but so what was the key decision for doing it? And then what's the biggest value that she's added to you? Look, Nick, you, you know, as an owner of a business, how many emails and stuff like that fly across your desk every day. You know, the, the demands that come on your time and, you know, you're also a, a father of a you know, young family like I am and, and the level of organisation and stuff that goes on. And, you know, again, it's about focusing. For me, it was about focusing on what's important and, and what's, what's valuable, if you like. And I was finding that I was doing a lot of low-value type work that Claire has been able to, to take and either redistribute or, or manage on, on my behalf. So for me, it was just, I guess, again, it's about that leverage or capacity just helping me out so that I can focus on more on what's important. And, and the thing about it is, you know, I, I probably don't need a full-time EA and, and you know, as, as a result, she's now taken on helping a couple other people out in the office and doing other projects as another admin resource in, in the team as well. So, yeah, that, that's been, you know, if anything, that's been one of the absolute, I guess, offshoring successes that we've had is her. Excellent. Just out of interest, because I, I had this on a, a podcast a couple of months ago mm. with one mm. of our clients. 
the amount of time that it saved her with having an EA and she was saving anywhere between one and two hours a day in her case. Yeah. How many yeah. hours do you think that Claire actually saves you on a daily or weekly basis? Um, oh, look, that's hard and I haven't even really probably tried to quantify it, but, you know, I'd expect it's probably every bit of that one to two hours a day. You know, except when things get absolutely crazy, I don't, you know, I expect to be home at half past five or six o'clock to spend time with the, the kids uh, and hang out with the family and do those sort of things. And, and I know, you know, prior to that, you know, that was more of a rarity than it was um, than the normal. So I would suggest, you know, at a minimum, she's saving me at least an hour a day. Which for a, for a partner or owner of a business, that's a significant longer-term value. But, okay, we'll keep moving on, Andrew. So yeah. um, now one of the benefits of offshoring is obviously typically we see better average hourly rates or, or profit mm. to the firm. So without mm -hmm. going into the numbers, have you seen a positive effect on your average hourly rate if you measure that or if not, just to the general profitability of the firm? Oh, look, the, the business profitability has improved. A lot of that's on, on the back of growth. And look, Nick, I would say our average hourly rate has improved, but not to the level that I wanted it to improve. And, and that's not due to the fact that the offshoring framework is not right or it's not the way to go. As I said, we've just had some internal challenges in executing that to the level that we need to. And I expect that over the next 12 months with our new production manager and the rebuild of those systems that we're going to see a significant change in that number over the next 12 months. And when I say a significant change, I'm probably expecting a, a 30 to 50% uplift in that average hourly rate recovered, which is going to be significant. You know, I, I estimated we did a waste audit through here and I expected that through rework, efficient, you know, inefficiency and things like that, that I reckon we were blowing up close on a million dollars worth of profit per annum, which is, you know, is not great. And I think, you know, if we can recover half or three quarter of that through improved process and, and stuff like that, that'll make a huge difference to this business here. So, so you know, to say that we've seen a, a, a massive improvement uh, as yet, I would say the answer to that is it hasn't been massive. It, it, there has been an improvement, but I think the potential improvement is is huge. Excellent. So what is one bit of advice that you'd give your younger self from a business point of view? Um, for me, um, if I was to be able to rewind the clock 15 years or 20 years and talk to my younger self, I would say make sure you, you focus on execution. You know, like most entrepreneurial-minded people, um, I, I'm not short of ideas and a lot of the people around this office aren't short of ideas, but we've suffered at, at times from magpie syndrome where we get something to 80% and then focus on it and then move on to the next shiny thing without executing what we were doing or we were in the process of doing as well as we should have. So we've found at, at times that we've got a lot of stuff around here that's finished to 80%. So... You know, going back and, and I guess teaching myself or saying to myself, get people around me to execute your ideas and execute them well would be the thing that, that I would be telling myself as a young business owner. It's great advice. Couldn't, couldn't agree more with that. So one bit of advice that you give your younger self from a personal point of view. Look, the thing I struggle with personally, mate, is my lack of discipline. And what I mean by discipline is, 
you know, whether it's, uh, you know, it's personal habits, whether it's discipline to exercise, whether it's discipline to have time out, whether it's discipline to stay on task, things like that. I'm, I'm a notorious for becoming distracted and uh, for, I, I call it highs and lows of um, work or, or binging or, or whatever you want to call it. That is an absolute dead set weakness of mine. So, if uh, my younger self, if I could go back and I actually try and do this now with my uh, my 12-year-old and 10-year-old girls, is teaching them good habits about discipline and, and you know staying on task and finishing what you start and you know th- things like that um, uh, about awareness and concentration and and things like that that you know I, I consistently despite my best efforts, I continue to struggle with. And, you know, if I'd learned that when I was, you know, 10 or 12, you know, I, I think I'd be much better than what I am. That's some great advice in that. And, and your girls are, are lucky to be getting that at a younger age and learning from, from you, I suppose, on that sense. Yeah, as long as they don't repeat my sins, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> now, for someone looking to grow their business or their team, what is the best piece of advice that you've ever heard and implemented that you could pass on to our listeners? Uh, look, probably for us, our business fundamentally changed probably seven or eight years ago when we came across the Vern Harnish growth model. And, and that basically came down to, you know, I guess setting a really clear business purpose, really clear business values, and having a clear strategy and then a disciplined action plan for execution. So I think that's probably the framework that changed our business. And that's what I, I constantly reinforce to my coaching clients is, is to focus on those sort of areas. And if you, I guess you have a look at it. If, if you don't know where you're going, then who knows where you're going to end up? And so that is the absolute dead set starting point. And there's so many different paths that you can take. But if you know where you are, you know where you want to get to, then the execution becomes, I think, becomes easy. So that that for us is probably the the, the key pillar and the best advice that I could give to somebody is, you know, having a, a strategy. And I suppose the extension to that is getting somebody to facilitate that with you, develop the development of that strategy. Don't try and necessarily do it yourself. A lot of business owners don't want to engage external consultants to, to help them develop their strategy or their action plan. And it's very hard because you you look at things through a you only look at through things through a very narrow lens. And having somebody external come and um, you know, just challenge your thoughts, you know, look at things through a different lens is is really helpful. And you know, as strange as this might sound, you know, I, I running I run a lot of strategy and planning sessions for clients, but then I hire somebody else or we hire somebody else to come in and run ours. Yeah, I think that's great advice and having a coach to coach you, um, although you're the coach for your clients, I couldn't agree more with that and mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of Vern Harnish and particularly his Scaling Up book. Is, yep. Yeah, it's the gospel around TOA. Yep. All right, so we're going to finish off with a quick five in five, um, just short yep. and sharp. So what cloud software do you use? Oh, look, we're pretty much zero based. So, you know, all our practice management is around that zero that zero suite, you know, we, we're still obviously engaged with the other platforms as well. But, you know, zero is probably 90% of where we play. Excellent. Now, what's your favourite app? <laughs> um, this is, does it have to be a business app? <laughs> no, it can be anything, anything. <laughs> Do you know what? Mate, I'm an absolute AFL footy tragic and I am right into Supercoach. And my Supercoach app is 
the most damaged app on my phone or on my iPad. <laughs> so that's where you get distracted. That's where I get distracted. So um, on the weekend or yeah, at you know seven o'clock at night or whatever it is when I'm looking at what's going on in in the footy and my super coach team, that that's what's getting hammered. That's yeah, this is this is this is the scary thing is that the two girls are playing super coach now as well. So um, <laughs> you've got the girls might, on it already. That might not be a good thing. No. So what's your one must read each week? Uh, look, I, I subscribe to the Seth Godin blog, and, and you know, for me, he, he sends out like a daily uh, thing, and it's it's not so much a must read in terms of a business journal or anything like that, but his insights and and little blogs and snippets that he sends out on a daily basis is is always lightning and enlightening and and challenging. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. He is an absolute guru. Your favourite social media channel? Where do you spend most of your time when you are on social media? <laughs> Mainly Twitter and Facebook for me uh, are the two. Uh, I'm more of a, you know, I participate a little bit, but I'm still more of a um, watcher than a, a participant. So they're probably the, the two main ones. Um, Excellent. And your favourite yep. KPI? <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story, Nick. Uh, you'll like this. and I don't think it's actually a very good KPI. Um and if Rob Nixon ever listens to this, he'll or, or Colin Dunn, they'll have a laugh. We're at a business coaching session with uh, our Nixon coaching group going back probably eight or nine years ago. And we were going through favorite KPIs as part of that conversation. And one of my former business partners was a bit out there, let's say. He, he thought of things that are completely different than what other people for it. And he came up with the KPI fees per kilogram. And Everyone looked at this bloke and said, what do you mean fees per kilogram? And he said, well, based on the number of heads and how much everybody weighs, you can do an average fees per kilogram. So I'm not sure whether that's helpful to anybody, but that's probably the funniest one uh, that I've, I've come across. Uh, I've never heard of that before. That's a good it, one. <laughs> it was quite random. There, there was a lot of people in the coaching meeting just scratching their heads and going, oh, mate, what are you, what are you on here? What are you talking um, about? <laughs> what are you talking about? So uh, for us, really, look, the, the focus for us in terms of our efficiency and, and profitability, the two we really look at seriously is our average hourly rate recovered and our gross profit margins. They're the two that we, we focus on that generally the team can control. There's a heap of others that we obviously track, but they're you know, a couple of the main ones. Excellent. Thank you so much. There's so much insight that you've been able to give us today. And I can, I mean, it really flowed through in the conversation today, the business mindset and mentality that you do have compared to a lot of accountants that are there in the, out in the industry that are, that are more focused on the technical side. So, you know, hence why, you know, you run a really good, really strong business. It's an industry leading one. And in my eyes, it's one of the better ones that I've certainly seen. Now, for any of our listeners that want to reach out to you or, or just follow you, what's what's the best way for them to get in touch? Is it through Twitter? Is it through Facebook? What's the best way for them to yeah, reach out look, to you? I mean, the website is there, www.altitudeadvisory.com.au. You can hit me up on email, andrew.m at altitudeadvisory.com.au. Uh, I'm on Twitter, my Twitter handles at amatna, but the altitude one is at, at altitude ad. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, you can track me down there. So there's various channels that you'll be able to, you know, get hold of me or, or get hold of somebody in the business on. Excellent. Thanks again for your time today, Andrew. Lots of lots of value there. No worries. Pleasure. 
To follow our podcast and get insights from leading accountants, simply visit theoutsourcedaccountant.com or visit iTunes or SourCloud and head to the Offshore Accountant Podcast. To connect with me personally, just look for my Twitter handle at Nick Hugh Sinclair or find me on LinkedIn at Nick Sinclair. Thanks and have a great day.